If you're from a traditional church, you know that during Lent you refrain from saying the Alleluia so that on Easter this becomes the great Alleluia day. The great day where we say, at last, praise the Lord, Alleluia. So we've been in this series throughout Lent called Conversations, and we've been journeying with Jesus all the way to the cross. And so we've met different people along the way. We met Levi, the tax collector, who maybe is a picture for us of the sinner. And then we met the woman at the well, and she was a picture for us of the person who was the outcast, the person who was shunned from society. And then we met the man who was laying by the pool, and he was the picture for us of the helpless, the one who couldn't help himself. And then we met the Gadarean man who was deeply troubled by evil spirits, and we said, this guy's hopeless. This is the kind of person that society sort of writes off. And then last week, We met Jesus talking to the criminal on the cross. And this is a person that that is the doomed. The person who's at his last hour. Surely it's too late for him. Turns out to not be the case. And this morning, here we are after the resurrection. We finally come to Easter at last. And there's one more conversation that we're going to look at to help us. Now, when you think about resurrection, and maybe when you've seen Easter plays, you know, New Life does the thorn, and I got to see it. Uh, last weekend, and it's a wonderful production. But you know, all Easter productions do this because we can't help it. The, the, the whole j- resurrection scene is always the climactic moment of the story. And of course, we want to convey that with art because it is the climactic moment of the story, except that the way the gospel writers tell the resurrection, it can almost feel anticlimactic because it's at the cross that all of a sudden the noonday sun turns black. It's at the cross that the ground shakes and Jesus says these final last words and everything is apocalyptic. At the cross, all of creation goes dark. But on Easter Sunday morning, nobody saw him bursting out of the tomb. Nobody saw him with pyro and and, and fireworks. Nobody saw that. And I wonder why that is sometimes. Why is it that the death is dramatic, but the hope is hidden? Why is it that the death is dramatic, but the hope is hidden? And I can't help but reflect that isn't that, that that is the way it so often is in life, isn't it? That the devastating news, the difficult news, the sorrow, the tragedy, the hopelessness, the despair, those are the things that are clearest to us. Those are the things ever before our eyes, thanks in no small part to... 24-hour news. And so the world is going through catastrophic shock. Every second, every hour, there's breaking news. And everything we see and everything we hear is bad. The signs are all gloomy. But we are people of the resurrection. We are people who say, yes, The death and the bad news and the despair and the disappointment may be what is dramatic. That may be the thing that warrants its own special musical soundtrack. Every time breaking news comes, this ominous music comes along with it. We are people who say there is a hope that is hidden. A hope beneath the surface that maybe not everybody sees, but that we believe. The question this morning is, resurrection is here, but can you see it? Resurrection life has arrived, can you see it? 
And maybe before we can even really answer that question of can we see it, we need to ask ourselves what you think the resurrection meant. For many of us who grew up in church, resurrection was sort of the, phew, I'm, I'm glad that whole messy, awkward Good Friday story is over. So many of us, especially as modern Christians, don't like to sit in the depth of the despair of Good Friday. If you were with us at the Good Friday service, and you remember how it ended with the candles being blown out and utter darkness and silence, and you sort of left feeling like, uh, <laughs> are we really ending this way? So we get the band back up on stage quick. Is Easter just this moment where we say, whew, thank goodness that whole little bloody messy thing, glad that's, that was kind of awkward. Is this God sort of saying, sorry about that? Or is Easter something more? Sometimes in our minds, maybe Easter is not that. It's not sort of a, whew, glad it's over. But maybe it's in our minds, it's meant to be this great proof that Jesus was divine. And so, oh, look, Easter, this is the proof that Jesus was God. But, you know, if Jesus meant Easter to be the proof that he was God, he would have appeared to more people, don't you think? Why does he only appear to the disciples? Why does he tell Mary, go and tell the disciples? Why not stage a show? Why not book the Colosseum? Why not book all the different arenas around in the big cities and say, guys, I'm going on tour. I'm back! Why not that? If the resurrection is Jesus trying to make a show of things and to prove that I told you so, I'm God, then why not do it with a little more pizzazz? But Easter is not... Phew, I'm glad Good Friday's over. And Easter is not proof that Jesus is God. Easter is something actually much larger than that. Easter is God signaling to the world that He's not finished with it yet. Easter is God's announcement to the cosmos that His ultimate plan for His creation is to rescue it and redeem it and restore it and to put everything that's broken back together again. Do you know that every Easter we celebrate, every Sunday that we celebrate, is like a signpost pointing to the one great Easter day. There will be a great Easter day. A great Easter day when God does for all of creation what He did for Jesus. This is why it's significant that when the first apostles talked about the resurrection, they don't say, Jesus rose. Because that fits sort of our hero mythology stories, right? Jesus sort of wrestled with death and then rose like a great Houdini. What the apostles say is God raised Jesus. And the reason that's significant is because the person acting is God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Well, what did the first person of the Trinity do? He's the same one who created the world. And so when he raises Jesus up, what he's saying is, look, what I'm doing here, I will one day do for the whole world. This is the vision John catches in Revelation when he says, I saw a new heaven and new earth. This is the thing that Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, listen, there will be a day. First, there's an order to things. Jesus will rise first as the first fruit and then all of you. Church, I've got great news for you. Your hope is better than heaven. Your hope is much better than heaven. 
Because heaven is a holding place. Heaven is a place where we say, okay, yeah, that's great. You can be with Jesus now. But that's not the ultimate defeat of death. The ultimate defeat, defeat of death is Jesus reigns until it's all under his feet. And then all who are in Christ rise with new bodies. And what God did for Jesus on Easter, he does for you and for me and for the earth itself, for the stars, for the cosmos. Can you imagine that? Now that is the most hopeful news of all. That's not a sentimental, sappy Easter. Phew, I'm so glad that bloody mess was over, is over. That's not a mere intellectual, you see proof, this is proof that Jesus... It's none of those things. This is the answer to the ache in our hearts for everything broken to be mended. Easter is the promise that God has done something about evil in the world. Easter is this hopeful day where we say, okay, because that happened, then I know this will happen. Jesus is the sign of what's coming, but he's also the way that it's going to come. He's the one who brings it about. But still you say, well, Glenn, that's, that's nice, but the truth is we can't see it. I can't always see that Jesus is at work, that this resurrection life has come forward from the future, breaking into the present, beginning to remake things. It's hard to see it. It's beneath the surface. The good news for you this morning is that you're not the only ones to feel that way. That there were these disciples who had heard all the stuff and knew all the promises, even had reports about an empty tomb, and were still full of despair and disappointment. Turn with me in Luke 24, verse 13. We're going to do the sermon this morning in two halves, and so we're going to go halfway through this text and then stop and worship a bit more and then come back to it. But verse 13 is where we'll start. On the same day, two disciples were traveling to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're leaving Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about everything that happened. And while they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived and joined them on the journey. Actually, this phrase here for arrive is much more like Jesus drew near. You'll see it in the ESV and other versions like that. This is Jesus seeing them walking with their downcast faces and Jesus drawing near. And they were prevented from recognizing him. But he said to them, what are you talking about as you walk along? And they stopped, their faces downcast. The one named Cleopas replied, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who's unaware of the things that have taken place there over the last few days? He said to them, What things? (laughs) They said to him, The things about Jesus of Nazareth. Because of his powerful deeds and words, he was recognized by God and all the people as a prophet. But our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped... Would you underline this in your Bible? We had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. All these things happened three days ago, but there's more. Some women from our group have left us stunned. They went to the tomb early this morning and didn't find his body. And they came to us saying that they'd seen a vision of angels who told them he's alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found things just as the women had said But they didn't see him. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people. 
Your dull minds keep you from believing all that the prophets talked about. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer all these things and then enter into His glory? And then He interpreted for them the things written about Himself in all the Scriptures, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets. We had hoped. Have you ever been there? We had hoped. Do you know what it's like to have set your hope on something only to see it fall apart? Do you know what it's like to sort of hang all of your hope on a new life change? Maybe a new city, maybe a new start, maybe a new career, maybe a family, maybe a marriage, maybe a move, maybe a new church. We had hoped. We had hoped. But it's not just things in life. Sometimes it's also things that have to do very much with what's called faith or Christianity. Have you ever been in church or been at a religious meeting or something like that where someone said, hey, listen, if you put your faith in Jesus, everything will turn out fine. You'll be happy. You'll be healthy. You'll be blessed. You'll be prosperous. Your businesses will do fine. Your kids will never uh, get sick. They'll never rebel. Everything will be amazing. Just believe. Just raise them this way and they'll never turn away. Just do this and it'll work out. Follow these six steps and you'll never be in, in lack. Business will work. Kids will obey. Spouses will cheerily love each other. We had hoped. We had hoped. Do you know what it's like to have hoped that all of those things would happen only to find that they didn't? Only to be faced with a bad doctor's report? Or to be given notice at work? Or to hear the news from one of your children? Do you know what it's like to say, yeah, well, I, I used to do the Jesus thing. I used to be in church. I used to hope. We had hoped. These disciples had downcast faces, dashed hopes, and dull hearts. Not a happy bunch on Easter. And maybe that's where some of you are at. You want to believe. You want to rejoice. You want to have this sense of hope, and yet all you find over and over again is downcast faces, dashed hopes, dulled hearts. And the disciples say to Jesus, but there's more. (laughs) But there's more. We had hoped, but there's more. And they hear about the empty tomb, and they hear about Jesus not being there, but they can't see it. In one way, this whole story, this whole text is about the loss of sight. In one way, this whole story is about a people who the only thing they could see were the images of death and the images of despair and the images of disappointment. And maybe you know what that's like, where when you close your eyes, the only thing you see is the wreck in front of you. But there's more. And you know there's more. And you think there's more. And you hope there's more. But you hear it but cannot see it. You know, sometimes I wonder about the impact of 
technological progress on our hearts and on our ability to have wonder. You know, in one sense, with all the blessing of science and all the blessing of discovery and technology, in one sense what it's done is it's pulled the curtain back on everything. Now nothing is hidden. Now we can see how everything works. You want to see the gears? You want to see how this actually happens? We are all like a collective culture of children who no longer see the puppet, but now see the strings and the gears and the machinery and think, oh, oh, that's all there is. And so technology does two things, at least. It gives us this illusion that everything in life can be explained. Oh, well, you see, that's just because... But not only do we have this illusion that everything can be explained, but that everything can be changed or manipulated to our liking. So if there's not a fresh coat of powder on the ski slopes, we'll make some. <laughs> I'm not a skier, so I, it's neither good news nor bad news for me. <laughs> I know. I thought you should know that about me. But technology gives us the illusion not only that everything can be explained, but that everything can be changed or manipulated. But there are still these moments that we run into in life. Still these health problems that we can't solve. Still these hearts that we can't change. Have you noticed that technology and gadgets don't work too well in changing your spouse? Or your friend? And you run into things and you say, wait, wait, is there more? I hope there's more. The good news for us this morning is that Jesus comes and joins us on the journey. Jesus joins us on the journey. Jesus joins us on this journey. You're walking away and He draws near. You know, for too many years, too many of us likely have heard the message from other Christians or from kind of religion. Religion says, if you walk away, then don't you expect me to be ready for you when you come back. But do you know all through the Bible what the picture is that we see? is not, if you walk away, this is your last chance. Instead, what we see is, if you walk away, I'll come walking after you. So Adam and Eve hide in the garden and God comes calling. Keep in mind that it's not God who's hiding from our sins. It's not God that's saying, Ah, I can't touch you. I'm so holy. And you're so sinful. I can't. God's not hiding. Humans are hiding. God comes calling. These disciples are walking away. Let's just go home. Forget it. This doesn't work. We put our faith in it. Once again, we're disappointed. Forget it. It doesn't work. And as you're walking away, Jesus comes walking near and joins you on the journey. And He begins to explain the whole Scriptures to you. See, the impression that we've given people about the Bible is that the Bible is full of a list of of a record of how you failed God. And that the whole story of Scripture is an account of your failure. And so, so many of us don't either want to read it Or don't want to hear about it because I don't need another book that is the record of my failure. But do you know when Jesus begins to interpret the scriptures, what does he say? He says, I want to show you how Moses and the prophets and all of these scriptures speak of me. What? 
I thought it was about me. I thought it was about how I've broken this commandment and how I've broken that commandment and how I haven't been a good dad and how I've failed this way and how I've done that. Isn't that what the Bible is? What scriptures is Jesus talking about here? Old Testament. Again, we're tempted to simplify things and say, well, Old Testament basically show us how lousy we are and the New Testament is like God sort of changed his mind or kind of lightened up or, you know, took a chill pill and decided to be nice. But this is Jesus saying, even the Old Testament testifies about me, not you. You see, friends, the most important thing in the story is not your failures, but his faithfulness. The most important thing about the story the scripture tells us is not your failure, but the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. When we call Jesus the Messiah, when Jesus says that all the scriptures speak of me, what he's saying is, look, I knew from the beginning you would fall short. Your failure is not the shock here. That's not breaking news. But my faithfulness, my ability to be so faithful to my creation, to my people, to my promise, in spite of all of the failure, now that's breaking news. And it's good news. And that's the good news of Easter, that all the scriptures speak not of your failures, but of Christ's faithfulness. Can we stop right here and begin to turn our hearts to God in worship? If the team would come and prepare, this is what I want us to do, is to take a moment and to say, all right, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. I need you on the journey right here in the middle of this place, in the middle of this journey, this place where I'm walking away. I don't want the cross. I don't want to hear about this. I don't want the disappointment. I'm walking away. But somehow you've come to join me. You've come alongside me. Would you stand this morning and and just say to Jesus right where you are, Lord, I need you. Say, Lord, I need you. I need you to walk with me on this journey. I need you to stay with me. I need you to show me how all of the Scripture speaks of you. I need you to show me that the most important thing about the story is not my failure, but your faithfulness. Let's worship together this morning. The Scripture continues in verse 28. It says, When they came to Emmaus, he acted as if he were going on ahead, but they urged him, saying, Stay with us. It's nearly evening and the day is almost over. And so he went to stay with them. And after he took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. And they said to each other, weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and when he explained the scripture to us? Stay with us. Stay with us. This is essentially what we've just sung in worship. Lord, I need you. Stay with us. Jesus joins us on the journey, but I think he waits for us to invite him in to stay. He waits to invite us in to say, Jesus, don't just go with me on the journey. Come in and dine with me. I cannot help but think of The verse in Revelation where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man would open the door, I'll come in and dine with him. Jesus wants to come into our lives. 
He wants to do much more than to join us along the journey of doubt and disappointment and difficulty. Jesus wants to come into the very innermost places of our lives and our hearts, our homes. There's no way to, under, to overstate, rather, the significance of table fellowship in the first century. Sharing a meal with someone was a very special thing. You only did it with family or members from your kin, or at the very least, if you branched out from there, it would, it would be with people within your same social strata. To bring in a stranger that they just met along the, along the way. A stranger who was so clueless, no less. So daft about the recent events, about current events. Who is this guy? And yet, Jesus walks and kind of stops to see. Is joining you on the journey enough or will you ask me to stay? There's no doubt Jesus is with us every step of the way, joining us on the journey. But I think there are moments where he stops and he says, Are you going to ask me into this? Is it going to get real now? Is this a distant arm's length kind of conversation where it's like, Hey Jesus, I like you, I'll show up on Easter, I'll see you at Christmas, we'll do the baby thing. Or is this the moment where we say, you're standing and waiting, aren't you? You're wanting me to ask you to come in and, and, and stay. But a curious thing happens when they ask Jesus to come in and stay. He sits and eats with them, and then all of a sudden he starts acting like he's in charge. He takes the bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it to them. Now, you don't need to have first century cultural lenses to know that the guest doesn't come into your turn and starts into your home and start serving the meal. You don't invite a stranger into your house and they come to the kitchen and say, okay, excuse me now, where is the stuff? How many, would you like this? You have a seat, I'm going to, what? I thought I was the host and you were the guest. But this is the miracle of Jesus. He, you may welcome him in as the stranger, but he always becomes the host. He always takes over. You welcome him in as the stranger, but he always takes over as the host because Jesus hosts us. At his table. Jesus hosts us at his table. All of a sudden, the table of these disciples on the Emmaus Road becomes not their table, but the Lord's table. See, Luke has said this formula phrase three times. This is the third time in his gospel. He does it once when Jesus is feeding the 5,000. He says he took it, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it. He does it again at Passover. He took it, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it. Now he does it again. Luke is intentionally trying to say, hello, something's going on here. This is what Jesus does. He shows up. Ask him to stay and he'll take over. Ask him to come in. He's not coming as a guest. He's coming as the host. The resurrection means that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the world. Leslie Newbegin, the British missionary and theologian in the 20th century, said it this way. He said, the gospel is public truth. I like that. Because Christians too many times act like the gospel is a personal truth. And we're being sort of asked to be forced into a corner over and over again to say, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. And the uncomfortable announcement of Easter is, this is just true. Period. The rulers and the powers in Jerusalem and in Rome weren't threatened by a bunch of believers running around talking about their personal Lord and Savior. 
<laughs> if Caesar had heard that there's a group of people who think Jesus has risen and is alive in their heart, he would have said, that's cute. Crazy, but cute. Instead, they said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. In other words, all the things you think you are, you are not, but Jesus is. The announcement of Easter is the announcement of followers of Jesus that say to the world, all the things that say they are these things, they are not those things. A job is not the American dream. This is not the goal. That is not the goal. This isn't what runs our life. It's not an economic theory. It's not a political party. It's not the name of a nation. It's not the name of a family. It's not the name of a church. It's the name, the only name under, he- under heaven by which all people are saved. It's the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus. And so the gospel is this public truth that makes everybody nervous because now you have to decide. I mean, that's an awkward moment when you invite the stranger into your home and he starts taking the bread. And you're like, should I stop him? We weren't really going to do the bread first. (laughs) And you're faced with this decision. Do I stop him or do I let him? That's the Easter decision. Is Jesus coming in to take over, or is he coming in to be a cute, awkward house guest that sits at the corner of the table and eats his food quietly? (laughs) Jesus comes in, he hosts us at his table. But see, it's the best news possible, isn't it? The psalmist said, Lord, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. What we see in Jesus is Jesus preparing a table for his enemies, for the very ones who insisted on living like enemies of God, for the very ones who lived in rebellion and sin and failure, for those very people, Jesus says, I've prepared a table for you who are my enemies. And not only have I prepared this table, not only am I the host, I'm going to take this one up. I'm the feast. I am the bread. I am the cup. I am the one that's given for you. It says then that their eyes were opened. There's no doubt this is an echo of the phrase in Eden. Do you remember the phrase in Eden? It says then they took the fruit and they ate it and their eyes were opened. Except it wasn't really, was it? It was really the beginning of the darkness. It's really the beginning of the blindness. Can I tell you that everything else that the world, everything else that is promised to you to open your eyes is really blindness disguised. Every other cup, every other drink, every other table, every other feast that said, hey, have this, this will open your eyes. Say, no, all that is is blindness. All that is is binding me. It's not another drug trip. It's not another relationship. It's not another this. All those things are, they're not opening my eyes. They're blinding my eyes. Jesus opens our eyes to see him. Every Sunday when we gather here at New Life Downtown, we open the scriptures and we come to the table for the sacrament. The scripture and the sacrament. And we believe very strongly in this because we think this is how the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, to see Jesus. How is it that we as a people see Jesus every Sunday when we gather? It's as the singing points us to him. It's as the scriptures are opened and speak of him. It's as the sacrament of the Lord's table. It's when we come to it. And say again, be my portion, Lord Jesus. 
It's in that place that our eyes are opened again. See, the resurrection reality is not Jesus living in your heart. We've got to do better than that. We've got a lot of Easter songs that say, God's not dead, He's living in my heart. That's not it. God raised Jesus from the dead, and that means all of the world is beginning to be restored and renewed. And one day it'll happen, for real. You know what this does? It gives you new eyes for the world. It gives you new eyes for the world. Your eyes are not Fox News or CNN. Your eyes are not headlines. Your eyes become the eyes that Jesus opens. And what you see around you is not, oh, this, or oh, that. All of a sudden what your eyes see is, there's resurrection life. I know you don't see it, but there's resurrection life. And all of a sudden you have eyes to say, look, even in the midst of this valley of the shadow of death, here's Jesus with me. And even when I'm surrounded by the enemies that are taking over my life and pressing in from every side and and it's cancer and it's sickness and it's this and it's death and it's this and all of that. And you say, even in the midst of this, there's this table. God, give me eyes to see it. God, give me new eyes to see the world. Awaken a holy imagination. Christians are people with an alternate imagination about the world. Everybody else says, this is the story of the world. And we say, no, this is the story of the world. And I can't prove it to you and I can't persuade you and I don't have ten reasons to be this airtight case to defeat you. Because nobody comes to Jesus. Nobody's eyes are open because they lose an argument. Jesus doesn't give these disciples with downcast faces and dashed hopes and dull hearts, he doesn't give them an argument. He doesn't give them a case for why it really is him. Instead, what he gives them is a meal. And he says, may your eyes be open. See the world in a new way. I've been reading to my children the very last of the Chronicles of Narnia book. We've been working our way through it over the last couple of years. And we're finally to the last battle, and I've waited on it because I wanted to make sure they could get it. I didn't plan on Jonah sitting in on the story and listening with us, but he does. And, and he doesn't really get it. And sometimes to Sophia and Nora's chagrin, he interrupts every once in a while. And he keeps, he's, he keeps asking about Tash, the monster. And he's quite convinced that someone has turned into Tash. I'm trying to tell him that Tash has always been Tash. But every few minutes, Dad, Dad, is Tyrion Tash? No, Tyrion's the good king. Tash is like this monster. But the story of the last battle is really the story where everybody dies. (laughs) They go through the stable door. They're forced through the stable door. and, And you think they've lost this battle. This is the one battle in Narnia that Aslan doesn't come riding up on the hill to save them. Instead, they're thrown into the stable door. But a strange thing happens when they go into the stable door. What they see is all the other great kings and queens of Narnia. They say, Peter and Edmund. Susan's not there because she doesn't believe anymore. That's an, anyway. And then there's Lucy. And then there's Diggory and Polly, the first you know, lord and lady of Narnia. And then there's this circle of dwarfs. And the thing that's happened in the last battle, just to give you a little, little itty-bitty bit of backdrop, 
is there was this ape. It opens with an ape finding some lion skin. And he convinces his not very smart donkey friend to wear this lion skin. And he says, wear this lion skin and pretend to be Aslan. Call yourself Aslan. Aslan in the Narnia books is this picture of Jesus. And, and so the ape has the donkey dressed up like a lion, living in this stable, coming out at night only in firelight. And he tells all the animals, this is Aslan. And then in using Aslan's name in vain, he has the animals in Narnia basically turned into slaves. And he's got these other people coming in and the Calormines and all of this stuff. Anyway, you get to this moment of the story where the good king of Narnia exposes it and he says, no, no, look, it's a donkey with a lion's skin. That wasn't Aslan. And thinking that the dwarfs will then say, okay, 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 fine, we'll believe. You know what they say instead? They say, we're done. We're done with these stories and myths. We've never seen an Aslan. How do we know there's even a real Aslan? There's probably no such thing as Aslan. How do we know you're not making up a story to control us? And so the dwarfs then come up with this phrase, and they said, the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. We are for ourselves. We don't need anybody. We are for ourselves. But in an act of mercy, the dwarfs find themselves inside this new Narnia, like the new heavens and the new earth. And they're there. And Aslan comes to them. And this is where I'll read to you. And Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. And instantly a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees. Pies and pigeons and trifles and ices. Doesn't sound like a feast, but I trust that for dwarfs this is a feast. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand, but it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough that it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sorts of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said he had gotten a bit of an old turnip, and a third said he found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. Very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had. And they started grabbing and snatching and went on to quarreling till in a few minutes there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes and trodden underfoot. Last, when they sat down, they all said, well, at any rate, we haven't let anyone take us in, which is an old kind of British expression of saying we haven't had let anyone fool us. No one's taken us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. And then Aslan says, you see, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Our prayer this morning is that we would let the great Lord who sets before us a great feast, that we would let Him open our eyes to see. Would you pray this prayer with me this morning? It's a prayer that's written for this very text. Pray this together. Jesus, come to me. Join me on the journey I am on. Turn my eyes away from the empty tomb, from the images of death and violence and doubt and despair. Turn my eyes toward the risen Christ in the pages of Scripture, in the bread and the wine. Be known to me. Come, Jesus, come. Would you bow your heads? Just quietly where you are.
just begin to confess your need for the Lord. Maybe repent at this moment of the ways that you've tried to take it into your own hands, the the ways that you've insisted on your own way. Maybe like the dwarf saying, no, no, we're on our own, we're not going to be fooled. Just quietly confess and say, God, I, I, I repent of the stubbornness. I, I want you to open my eyes. 